This program is brought to you by SoundsTrue.com. At SoundsTrue.com, you can find hundreds of downloadable audio learning programs, plus books, music, videos, and online courses and events. At SoundsTrue.com, we think of ourselves as a trusted partner on the spiritual journey, offering diverse, in-depth, and life-changing wisdom. SoundsTrue.com. Many voices, one journey. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today, my guest is Temple Grandin. Temple is a renowned American author, animal behavior expert, and advocate for autistic people. Her inventions of a hug machine to pacify people with autism and curved corrals to reduce panic in animals during slaughter have brought her considerable popularity across the world. She's written numerous books on autism and animal welfare, including Animals in Translation, The Autistic Brain, and Thinking in Pictures. Her life has been transformed into an inspiring film, Temple Grandin, starring Claire Danes, and has won several Emmy Awards and a Golden Globe. Temple is currently a professor of animal science at Colorado State University. And today, Temple and I spoke about the differences between verbal and visual thinkers and how to build a bridge of understanding between the two. We talked about the importance of helping people on the autistic spectrum invest time and energy in what they can do, not in what they're lacking. We also talked about Temple's observations working with animals and how, as a nonverbal thinker, she feels a special kinship with the animal world. Finally, Temple and I spoke about her view of spirituality and how she sees the Hubble deep space field when people ask her questions about her spiritual experience. Here's my conversation with Temple Grandin. Temple, you begin your TED Talk, The World Needs All Kinds of Minds, talking about how autism is a spectrum. And then you go further and you say that Einstein, Tesla, and Mozart would all perhaps have been considered to be on the autism spectrum. And I'd never heard anyone say that before, and I found that quite provocative. And I, I thought we could just start there. Really? Einstein, Tesla, and Mozart, would they all have been considered on the autism spectrum? Well, Einstein had no speech until age three, lots of tantrums. I like to line things up. See, autism is a behavioral profile. It's not, there's no lab test for autism. And you have a lot of engineers and scientists out in Silicon Valley that have got, you know, mild autistic traits. In fact, when you put two uh, computer scientists together, sometimes you get a kid that's got very severe, low-functioning autism. See, as a visual thinker, I see the person, I don't see the word. You know, verbal thinkers, I think, tend to more categorize it. But I see one little geeky kind of kid that's in a gifted and talented class, and then I see another kid just like him, and he's in an autism class. But many school systems would have placed Einstein as a child on the mild end of the autism spectrum. So help me understand this view of autism as a spectrum. How would you 
illustrate that or describe the one side of the spectrum, the other side of the spectrum, what might be in between? Well, basically, on the mild end of the spectrum, there's no speech delay, but the person is socially awkward, oftentimes really bright in, in, a, in an area such as art or mathematics. And at the other end of the spectrum, you're going to have a very, very severely handicapped person with no speech and maybe has difficult dressing themselves. So how did this all get called the same thing? Because when the kids are three, the ones that have speech delay look the same. And if you do a lot of very early intensive therapy, which is really important, you can kind of pull some of them out of it. And then there's others, um, they, they don't progress so well. But there's kind of three levels of severity. There's the Asperger type, and they've removed that now from the diagnostic classification with no speech delay, socially awkward. Then you have um, autism where there's speech delay, one like me, with no speech until four to five years old. And then you've got... Um, a person that uh, severe, uh, they have speech delay plus other problems, they don't learn to talk, and they may have some other really severe handicaps. Mm-hmm. Now, one of the things that seems so amazing to me about you is that here you are someone who's on the autism spectrum, someplace in the middle, as you're describing, yeah. but you've been able to have if you will, a meta view, a view from above of the entire process, the scientific understanding of what it might mean to be on the autistic spectrum. How is it that from the inside, you can look at the experience almost as if from the outside? Because I, well, I have, I have my own experiences, but then I also read a lot. I was, uh, had trouble learning to read. I had to learn to read with phonics. Other kids are going to learn to read with whole word. But I read a lot. I read a lot of scientific papers. I read a tremendous amount of stuff. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, you mentioned your own experience from the inside. And I know you wrote a book called Thinking in Pictures, where you described a little bit about what it's like on the inside. And I wonder if you can explain that for our listeners, what it feels like on the inside. Well, the first chapter of Thinking in Pictures, I discuss how my um, brain is like a VCR. Now I'm really dating myself. I should have said videos. But all my thoughts are in pictures. They're like videos in my head. And I didn't know that most other people tend to think more in words. And I describe how I think. I also describe some of the sensory problems I have. And I still have somewhat with scratchy clothes against my skin, which really... uh, bothers me a whole lot, uh, problems with sound sensitivity, high anxiety when puberty hit. That's now controlled with a low dose of antidepressant drugs. And I describe these experiences in my book, uh, Thinking in Pictures. I also have a chapter in there called Einstein's Cousin, where I talk about some of the people that I think might have been on the spectrum undiagnosed. And I went through their biographies and looked for descriptions of childhood uh, behavior. There are some other books out. It isn't just me that's saying this about, um, you know, other people, you know, some scientists and musicians being on the spectrum. And I've worked with people in skilled trades when I was out working on construction that I know were mild on the, on the spectrum. And the reason why they're doing well is because they got to take a skilled trade like welding or auto mechanics. Mm-hmm. Now, let's talk a little bit more about this thinking in pictures, because I've met really great storytellers And I've even noticed in my own experience, you know, I can shut my eyes and sometimes if I'm telling a story, I can see a whole movie and describe, you know, slide by slide the movie that's going on inside my brain. So it seems like thinking in pictures is not 
just something that people who are on the autism spectrum Oh, no, thinking in pictures is a continuum. I tend to have a real extreme version of it because I can test run equipment in my head, but it's a continuum. Uh, People that are artists um, tend to think more in pictures. And in my latest book, The Autistic Brain, uh, Richard Panik and I uh, go over all the research that shows that there are, like the artist kind of thinking, who thinks in photorealistic um, pictures or object visualization. Then there's another kind of person that's a more spatial pattern, mathematical type of visualization. And there actually are two different types of visual spatial thought, photographic, object, and pattern thinking. And in the Autistic Brain book, uh, we've got all the... Uh, scientific studies that show that that's actually true. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And they were looking at, at artists and engineers. They were not looking at people with autism in this study, in, uh-huh. in the papers. Yeah, yeah. So then if thinking in pictures is one of the aspects that potentially puts you on the autistic spectrum, you were describing to me the other qualities as well. You said severe anxiety and also difficulty in social... Core deficit in autism is problems with uh, social interactions and being yeah. socially awkward, and I definitely had that problem. That's described in thinking and pictures and other other things that I've uh, that I've written. Uh-huh. What have you found has helped you the most in terms of social awkwardness? Just old-fashioned fifties upbringing. Table manners were taught, taught shaking hands. I had bosses at work. I had some good bosses that uh, explained to me that criticizing some welding that it, that looked like pigeon doo-doo was not the right way to do it, and I need to apologize. Just telling me, sort of like coaching somebody in a foreign country, uh, uh, how you know how to how to interact with people better. You cannot be vague. Like when I went to China, I learned if I point with one finger, that's rude. In China, when you point, you use your whole hand. Yeah, but. Temple, I mean, I think a lot of people maybe have had training in how to be gracious socially, but they still find themselves panicked, sweating, and, you know, not really capable of doing it. Well, a lot of these things are a continuum. Now, brain scans have shown that uh, uh, my fear center is three times larger than normal. Now, I want to emphasize that's not true for everybody with autism. Uh, and that's spelled out in, in my book, The Autistic Brain. Um, but autism is a continuum. And, it's, and they've, see, the other thing is, it's not a hard diagnosis like tuberculosis. So they do this lab test, and you definitely have tuberculosis. It's a behavioral profile. And over the years, doctors have been um, changing the, the criteria for the behavioral profile. And nobody's doing that with tuberculosis. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because what's happened now that they've taken out the Asperger's is you have kids that my generation, which is called geeks and nerds, are now getting labeled with autism. And some of the some of the kids are doing really well, and others, real smart verbal kids, are getting kind of a handicapped mentality. You know, mother was always pushing me to do stuff. I had to learn how to shop. I had to learn how to order food in restaurants. And, you know, you've got to just learn that stuff. Now, forgive me for my ignorance, but when you say Asperger's has now been taken out of the diagnostic approach, can you help me understand that? I'm not aware of that. Well, Asperger's was, um, you know, uh, you know, the social awkwardness with no speech delay. Yeah. And what they've done now is merged it all into the autism continuum. 
where autism, previously you had to have speech delay along with a lack of social relatedness and other symptoms like repetitive behavior. Yeah, yeah. Okay, I understand. And did you do you feel that it served people on the autism spectrum better when Asperger's was delineated as its own category? Well, there's certainly people that have that diagnosis that, that feel that way about it. You know, my the thing I want to see is I want to see kids go out and be successful. And and okay, a kid comes up to me and he's a little socially awkward. And he can talk. He's really good at art. Then work on building up his ability in art. When I was in elementary school, my ability in art was always encouraged, and I was encouraged to do lots of different kinds of art, and not just the same thing. You might have another little kid who's good at math. Well, don't make him do the baby math book. Give him the more difficult math book. And I'm getting concerned that too often there's too much emphasis on the deficit and not enough emphasis on building up the area of strength. Mm -hmm. You see, Mm -hmm. being a visual thinker, I'm, you know, I go watch some show on TV or something about, you know, a prodigy playing the piano, and then I go to an autism meeting and I see a kid exactly like him, and and instead of working on proving his musical ability, they want to stomp it out because they say it's abnormal. Hmm. And they're the same kid. You see, I don't, I don't get hung up on the word. Yeah, yeah. Now help me understand why would somebody want to stamp out someone playing the piano gorgeously? Well, because they, they get into what's normal and abnormal behavior. So it's abnormal because it's unbelievably gifted? Or it's abnormal because that's all he wants to do. Um, but people get hung up on the labels. Now, I want to find out what kind of thinker you are. I'm going to give you my, my, think, my visual thinking test. Access your memory on church steeples. How do they come into your mind? I would say I see a generic steeple. I just okay, see, yeah. you are a verbal person. For the person who's very verbal sees a generic, a generic steeple, a generalized pointy thing. The person that's more visual will start naming off specific ones. Oh, the one down the street, the, the one uh, you know by the grocery store. They'll start naming off locations. Now, there's a reason why I picked church steeple to ask you, and not house or car. Most people can visualize their own home or their own car because they're so familiar with it. But when I ask you something you don't own, yeah, that's when I separate out the generic images from the more specific ones. I see specific steeples. Yeah, yeah. And is that more unusual? Well, there's a you know a lot of artists would would do the same thing. In fact, the studies that show that there's different kinds of visual and mathematical thinking. Um, were not done on people with autism. They were done on engineers and artists. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Now, you said something, Temple, that I thought was really interesting. You said that the fear center in the brain, that the amygdala, the amygdala that your amygdala is three times larger than... That's right. And I thought that that's quite remarkable. And I know I myself experience quite a bit of fear in my life. And I'm just curious to know how you've learned to work with your fears since you have this extra dose and you've done so many things, so many things people would be terrified to do. Well, by the time I got my early 30s, I went on antidepressant medication. And I have a chapter in Thinking in Pictures where I explain all the experiences with that. And heavy exercise would help. I built my squeezing machine. But then as I went through my 20s, the anxieties and the panic attacks got worse and worse and worse and worse. And I read some an article about a low dose of antidepressants. And you have to make sure you use a low dose. 
And when it works, it really, really works. The mistake that gets made when you're using antidepressants for treating fear is giving too high a dose. The high doses used for depression can cause agitation and insomnia. It's a very common mistake, and I fully explain that in my book. Do you feel afraid now when you do things like public speaking or other things that many people are quite afraid of? When I did my first public speaking in graduate school, I panicked and walked out. Hmm. And then I gradually got better at it. And one of the things that helped me to get better was to have really good slides when I gave some of my first talks on cattle handling. So then when I panicked, um, I could always have go back on the slides and have mm-hmm. those cue me. Yeah. But, you know, now here at this point in your life, you're talking to me and you have no idea what I'm going to ask you and you don't seem particularly afraid. You seem pretty relaxed. So I'm curious well, how I'm you... A, I've been on antidepressants since my early 30s. Uh-huh. I'm still taking them. Yeah. So you really credit them with helping you work with this oversized amygdala? Yes, and a lot of visual thinkers tend to be kind of panic monsters. I've worked with other visual thinkers in design work when we were working on designing stuff at meatpacking plants, and I know quite a few designers that are taking Prozac, and it's keeping them off the drugs and alcohol. Otherwise, they'd be using drugs and alcohol to treat their anxiety. Mm -hmm. Now, one of the things, Temple, that I'm really interested in understanding is I'm going to quote now from a recent conversation I had with somebody on the topic of collaborative intelligence, and it's how to think with people who think differently than you do. How do we do that? And how important? Yeah, I think it's very important. And the first step is you have to realize that people think differently. And I did not fully realize that until I um, until I, I did my book of Thinking in Pictures, and then I got further insights, you know, later on. Let's take something like the iPad. I mean, Steve Jobs was an artist who made the interface, and then the engineers have to make it work. You see, that's the different kinds of minds working together. Um, I've talked in many of my talks about the Fukushima nuclear power plant disaster. That was a visual thinking mistake. And what I've learned about the mathematician mind is they didn't see the folly of putting all the emergency cooling equipment in a non-waterproof basement with no watertight doors. That's a mistake I would never make. I can't design a nuclear reactor, but I do know that if that emergency pump doesn't run, I'm in so much trouble it isn't funny. And if I'm living next to the sea, I'm not putting it in a basement with no waterproof doors. And waterproof doors would have prevented that. So how would someone think best with you, with the kind of thinking that you engage with? If I want to think well with you and dialogue well with you, well, what I do I need to know? Well, I think the best thing to yeah. do is to... Is okay. I realize that you think in words, right? And I've had to work harder to get better at communicating with people that think strictly in words, because when I talk about things like different types of autistic kids, I'm seeing them. Specific examples. You see, another thing is concepts for me are bottom up. All concepts are made of specific examples sorted into categories. Where when you think in words, there's a big tendency to overgeneralize. Like people saying, what do you do about um, autistic behavior in a classroom? Well, that's not enough an- enough information to answer that question. I mean, how old is the kid? What's he doing? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm going to handle a three-year-old differently than handling some kid in high school. Yeah, yeah. Well, it sounds like, so first of all, it sounds like you've made a lot of effort and taken a lot of strides to meet verbal thinkers 
where they live. And that's right. What I'm trying to understand is as a verbal thinker, I want to meet you where you live. And it sounds like if I was specific and I ask specific things and talk about specific things, that, that that's helpful. Well, yeah, specific examples. And I'm finding when I'm troubleshooting animal behavior problems, people will say things like, my dog's crazy. Well, is a dog crazy happy or crazy biting somebody? I, I, that's not enough information to solve, the dog, solve their dog behavior problem based on a crazy dog. But I find that highly verbal thinkers tend to overgeneralize. Now, my kind of thinking, to make it work well, I have to fill up the Internet of my mind with a lot of web pages so that the Google I've got inside my head can surf through them and sort things in, into different categories. Right. So I think the best way yeah. for you to understand how my mind works is give me some keywords. I'm in my office, so don't give me something that I can see in an office. And don't make it something common like house, car, or pen or something like that. Okay. Um, so you want me to give you... Oh, you want, oh. I want you to sort of like uh, okay. ask me to explain something. Uh, you give me some words or something you might want me to explain, and I'll tell you exactly how my mind accesses the right. information. Okay. What makes a midget? What makes a midget? Um, I'm now seeing, I'm, I'm seeing some uh, pictures in my mind of, um, you know, a person I saw at a convention that was really small and another one I saw at a grocery store. What makes a midget? Okay, now I'm seeing uh, diagrams of uh, pituitary system and systems in the brain, you know, lack of growth hormone. I'm uh, starting to recall stuff from physiology books, bringing up some pictures of, of the endocrinology chart that was in the physiology book. But I tend to see the diagrams in the book first before I go for the words. Or if it's something I've read, it's something I've read and I've turned it into an image. Mm-hmm. And then you have two kinds of midgets. You've got dwarfism, where they are not properly proportioned, and a midget where they're small, but they're proportioned correctly. Yeah. Now, how is it, Temple, that the way that you think in pictures has been such a doorway for you to understand animal behavior? I mean, here you are. Animals don't think yeah. in words. Okay. They think sensory. Okay, the dog's out there sniffing a bush or something. What would he be smelling? What's the animal seeing? What's it hearing? Um, High-pitched sounds often tend to be distress calls. The lower-pitched sounds sometimes are, you know, are threatening. Sometimes they're associated with something nice. Um, it's sensory. Okay, start thinking about, um, okay, um, some food you really like. What does it smell like? What does it look like? What does it feel like when you chew it? Mm-hmm. Okay, mm-hmm. when you think about your favorite food, I'm, I'm okay. Mine's chocolate with a, a chocolate sauce, a chocolate ice cream with raspberry sauce on it, maybe some crushed raspberries on it. I really like that. Uh, but I'm now, I'm, I'm like, it's cold. I can smell the chocolate. I can taste it. I feel it in my mouth. I think a good way to think about sensory-based thinking is is try to get away from words when you're thinking about eating some of your favorite foods. Okay, and once again, uh, not to be too ignorant here, but I am really trying to understand. I get that animals don't work on the verbal channel, but help me understand the connection between the 
pictures that are the way you think and the sensory well, first, the sensory channel here. When I first started working with cattle, I noticed that they they you tried to get them to go down a chute to get vaccinated, and they'd balk at a shadow, or they would refuse to walk over a hose, or there's a coat hanging on the fence, they'd stop to sniff that. That's something I noticed very early on. Other people didn't notice it. Now, at the time that I was doing that, I didn't know other people didn't think visually. And, it was, and, and I wrote some very early articles uh, when I was working for the Fire and Ranchman magazine in the 70s, when I was in my 20s, of some cattle going up and sniffing a coat on a fence. It, it seemed obvious me, to me to look at what the animals were looking at. And I have a slide that I show in my talks uh, that I use to test people with. I'll talk in my talk and show them a bunch of things that cattle might stop at, seeing people outside the chute, a shadow, a chain hanging down. I'll show them that, and I'll talk about getting these distractions out of the chutes. And at the end of my talk, I'll show a slide of an animal coming out of a chute, staring at a sunbeam on the floor. And, then, and, and, it, and the caption says, non-slip flooring. Well, yeah, but that's not really what I wanted to talk about. Uh, that's kind of a distractor. And then after I say, yeah, non-slip flooring is important, I say, now you notice anything else about this picture? And a few hands will go up and, um, you know, say that they've seen the, the animal looking at the sunbeam. Now, when I show that picture to children, half the hands go up in the room. And when I showed that picture to mathematicians at Fermilab, almost no hands went up. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They don't see that the animal is staring at the sunbeam. Now, when I point it out, it's real obvious to most people, once I point it out. Mm -hmm. So your ability to get inside the mind of animals, if you will, once again, I mean, I, I get that you're thinking visually. H how has that helped you really get into this sensory knowing of animals? Well, because I'm thinking about what the animal is seeing. Cattle's an animal that uh, gets scared really easily, and it's often based on something that they were seeing. It's sensory-based, because, you know, I think, in, I think in images when I think about stuff. Okay, when I was telling you about the Fukushima nuclear power plant, I don't know exactly what the basement looks like, but I do know it's painted, it was painted baby blue. And when I went to Japan years ago, I actually drove by it. And so I'm seeing um, baby blue steel doors being smashed in with water. And now I'm seeing some guy in a Japanese hard hat uh, up on a baby blue catwalk looking at a big generator that's now underwater. And he's saying a lot of bad words in Japanese. Uh, you know, I know, whatever, you know, whatever he'd be saying. And he knows he's in a lot of trouble. So in that situation, I'm kind of imagining a picture because I don't know exactly what the basement looked like. Yeah, yeah. Do you yourself have extreme sensitivity to lights and sounds and things I'm like that? I'm sound sensitive. I startle easily. When I was a little kid and the school bell went off, it was like a dentist drill hitting a nerve. And sometimes that can be gotten, you know, be desensitized, especially if the child can initiate the sound. Um, it's now just a nuisance now. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. I guess what I'm curious about is, you know, you wrote this book, Animals Make Us Human, and you yes. write about many different kinds of animals. And I'm curious if yes. somebody in their own experience wants to have 
more insight into, I wonder what it's like, really, to be the dog that lives in my house with me, or the cat, or the bird that lives in my house with me. Dog's world is smell. And I think the closest that humans can get to that is I read about a wine steward that could identify a few thousand wines by smell. Wow. That might be a person sort of, a, you know, smellializing sort of like a dog. There's also an Oliver Sacks piece about a guy that took some drugs, and it um, he noticed as he walked through town, he'd smell all the different shops, and, and he got to thinking, well, maybe that's more like how a dog experiences things. But a dog can differentiate uh, so many different smells better than we can. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And if somebody wanted to get into the inner experience of a cat? Well, they can see better at night than we can. Um, cat's a hunter. Um, I'm thinking about, you know, they also know how to beg for food so they wake you up at 6 o'clock in the morning to feed them, too. They know just how to do that, jump on you while you're in bed. Yeah, yeah. You're listening to Insights at the Edge, produced by Sounds True. We welcome you to learn more about our collection of more than a thousand learning programs and receive three free gifts just for visiting us. Go to soundstrue.com backslash free. That's soundstrue.com backslash free. And now, back to Insights at the Edge. Is there something that you do in your work? I mean, I know you're a professor of animal science at Colorado State University. Is there something that you do in addition to reading and understanding the literature, a way that you're able to get inside the animal's experience? I mean, how are you doing? Well, I've doing, done a lot yeah. of observation of animals, too. Uh-huh. One of the things I talk to when I give talks to veterinary students and animal science students said, one of the things I want to try to teach you in my animal behavior class is to be a good observer. What position are the ears in? What's the animal's posture? You know, what's it doing with its tail? Be a really good observer. And I really emphasize, get away from verbal language if you want to understand animals. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what I'm getting from this interview, Temple, so far is that as a verbal thinker, I think I'm so hooked into the verbal channel that I've overemphasized that and I've missed a lot. I'm missing a lot. And then the thing, then there's, let's talk about some of the deficits of being a visual thinker. Visual thinkers tend to ramble. When I do writing, I have to put myself on a really tight outline so I don't ramble. I use slides or notes to keep me on the, on the mid things. See, a a verbal thinker tends to be much more linear in how they think. Mm-hmm. where a visual thinker is much more associative. Okay, so let's go back to, um, give me another key word, and I'll, I'll show you how my mind kind of associates, associates, and it has a type of logic. So give me, um, give me another key word or something to think about. Okay, a giant. A giant? Okay, I'm seeing cartoons of Jack and the Beanstalk. Uh, there's a grocery store that was called the Giant that you know, I went to a long time ago. Um, Seeing some giant chocolate bars. I mean, there's a lot of you know products that get advertised as uh, as giant. 
Um, I'm seeing uh, now. I'm seeing Shrek, the the you know the ogre in that you know that cartoon movie. He wasn't a giant, but some of the giants in fairy tales are kind of you know ugly ogres. So now I'm starting to see some of those kind of characters. I'm now seeing some of the aliens now in the latest Star Wars movie. And now, how did I get the 3D glasses? Okay, the reason I'm now getting from ogre-type things the 3D glasses is I wished I had not seen the movie in 3D because there's so much fascinating detail in the aliens that's blurred in the 3D version. And I wish I'd seen it in 2D. Mm-hmm. So that's mm-hmm. how I'm getting from giants and ogres to 3D glasses. Yeah. Okay, see how that association works? Yeah. It has a logic to it. Yeah. Yeah. And do you think people are just born with different predilections, different strengths in how they think? Some are verbal, some are visual. That's just how we are. Yes. Now, uh, you get into the whole thing about brain plasticity. Where I think the innate would make the biggest difference, in other words, what you're born with, is where you have an extreme ability or an extreme disability. And then a lot of other people are somewhere in the middle. And you can work on developing some verbal stuff. Okay, like going back to those church steeples, if I force you to close your eyes, you can probably start to see a steeple that's more specific. Mm-hmm. Can you do that? Yep, I can. Yep. That's right. See, now you're, getting, you're going down deeper into the graphics files in your brain, getting out of the association cortex. Yeah, yeah. So it's possible to do it, but you have to kind of force it. Yeah. Where for me, there is no generic one except for the one I carefully found on the Internet <laughs> to use in my slides. Yeah, yeah. And then I'm, now I'm seeing a particular PowerPoint slide that, with an illustration on it that I had to look hunt for a lot to find something that looked generic. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, Temple, we talked about the extreme sensitivity that animals can experience, whether it's, you know, being frightened by another person or a shadow or a loud sound or something like that. And, you know, you mentioned that for you when you were little, you also would occasionally get freaked out by super loud sounds and things like That's that. That's right. Yeah, yeah, and that it was bad. Now, the thing I want to mention also, because there's been some misunderstandings about how I relate autism to animal behavior. Where the autism is most like animal behavior is in the sensory-based thinking also in the extreme memory, things like bird migration, for example. Now, where autism is probably not similar would be in the emotions. I mean, animal emotions, are real, I think, are real similar to our emotions. And most animals are not socially awkward. But in uh-huh. the extreme memory, and, the, uh, and animals, when it comes to sound, are very much into the tone of voice. Uh, in my book, Animals in Translation, Catherine Johnson and I reviewed research on on prairie dogs that have kind of a noun-like function, adjective-like function, and a verb-like function in their calls by both the tone of the call and the rapidity of the call. Hmm, Interesting. So they're they're saying different things, and you can hear that. Maybe there's a coyote that is uh, uh, kind of, they have a coyote call. And then they have a coyote call to describe the coyote, like the one that lurks by the hole and waits for the prairie dog to come out or the one that just jumps from hole to pole. And then it's an urgency call, like how much danger there is, how rapid they do it. Yeah. So the adjective would be the urgency part of it. Um, and then if they make a, I'm trying to remember the experiment 
you know, absolutely right. They make a cardboard cutout done. It also reacts to that with the call. Now, I wanted to understand what you meant by extreme memory and how that functions in animals. Well, and, a squirrel, yeah. for example, um, can hide nuts in a thousand places and remember where they're all hidden. Mm-hmm. Oh, and there's a bird, I think it's called the Clark's Nutcracker, that can um, hide all kinds of food all over the place and remember where it is. Bird migration would be another example. And so animals have this ability, and in terms of people on the autistic spectrum... They Some also, people the yeah. Aut- people on the autism spectrum usually have really, really good memory. Uh huh. That uh-huh. tends to go. That tends to be in 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 most cases. Is that true for you? For visual things, yes. And somebody said to me, "Oh, that's the secret uh, thing. You're not supposed to see that. I can guarantee you it will be remembered." Other things, I don't have a photographic memory. I don't have a photographic memory for hotel rooms because I could care less about hotel rooms. Right, but if you saw a diagram or, or something like that, or... Uh, if I saw a diagram and somebody told me it's top secret, that's like um, putting it in front of... that. You see, I'm motivated to remember that. Yeah. But I don't remember um, uh, every flight I've been on mm-hmm. unless something out of the ordinary happened on that flight. Mm-hmm. Why do you think that you were so drawn to working with animal science. Why did that become your profession? Well, the first thing is I was exposed to cattle when I was 15 years old. This brings up a really important thing about careers. Students get interested in things they get exposed to. And if my mother hadn't gotten remarried at age 14 that would brought a ranch into the family, well, I probably wouldn't be in the beef cattle industry. And one big concern I have today about education is I don't think young um, a lot of young kids, just regular kids even, are getting exposed to enough different careers. So many schools have taken out hands-on things. Mm-hmm. And so you don't get to try on a lot of careers. For example, in our department, um, in animal science, about 70% of the students, both at our department and other universities, want to be a veterinarian. And I think one of the reasons for that, it's the only agricultural or animal career that um, the students are exposed to when they're young. But by the time the students leave... About half of them will, um, oh, well, we did some, I did some stuff in genetics, or I did some stuff with uh, ranch management. I found that interesting. I always tell students, do summer internships that are career relevant. Try on different careers. Find out what you like. Find out what you hate. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So part of it was that you were exposed to cattle. I was but, exposed to it. Yeah, but it seems wouldn't, like there's... It wouldn't have happened if I hadn't been exposed to it. Seems like there's there's more to it, though, in, in terms of your connection with animals, don't you think? Well, yes, but yeah, and I, and I saw a cattle go in the squeeze chute, and I got real infatuated with that because I noticed it tended to calm them down, so I built a squeeze chute-like device. But none of that would have happened if I hadn't been exposed to it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I've talked to parents where they find out their kid's good at computer programming, but they have to be exposed to it. Yeah, yeah. Well, you're making a, a very, very strong case about exposing young adults and teenagers to different career possibilities. I mean, you're making a very, very strong case. But I'm still trying to understand your personal emotional connection, if you will, with animals. I mean, maybe I'm stretching here. Maybe it's not like that for you. Well, the biggest thing is, is that, that my thinking process was more like them. I and mean, I really related to cattle getting scared of you know, different visual things. Yeah. 
And when I first started working on that, um, people thought that was kind of crazy. Another thing that motivated me when I was in my 20s is I wanted to prove to people I wasn't stupid. When I did those dip vat projects that were shown in the movie and that piece of metal and all that stuff got taken out and ended up working just fine, um, that proved to myself that I wasn't stupid. Yeah, well, I think you've clearly proven that beyond any shadow of a doubt, Temple. That that yeah, is. Yeah, uh, but when I was in my twenties, there was sure, a, of course, there was a big shadow of a doubt. Sure, sure. Now I want to ask you another question that I'm sure you've been asked many times, but I I want to ask you myself here, which is, you know, you talked about how you worked with cattle in this squeeze shoot, and that in the movie Temple Grandin. It shows very beautifully how you helped revolutionize the whole cattle industry such that it's a more humane, efficient, and peaceful way for cattle to go to their death, basically, to be killed. One of the big things I found, uh, when I was really young, I thought I could fix everything with equipment. That that fixes only half the problems. The other half is is getting people to do things right. And... and uh, one of the things that really made the difference is when we started the McDonald's audits in 1999, and now had the power of a major retail chain that was buying a million dollars a year of, of beef trimmings from these different plants, and we could make them, first of all, fix broken equipment. You know, the major thing that made stunning bad was broken equipment and slippery floors, you know, and you got to you know redo the floor surface so that um, animal isn't going to be slipping and falling on it, and then training people and supervising people. In fact, Cargill and JBS, so JBS is a Swift brand, uh, now have video cameras uh, monitored by outside auditors. And this has uh, really uh, made, forced things to improve. What, makes, what drives a lot of change is, is big retailers. But the system I developed for, um, for assessing the animal welfare is very simple, like traffic rules. You had to make five numbers. Like, for example, if more than 1% of the animals fell during handling, you'd fail the audit. If you had more than three cattle out of 100 bellowing and mooing in the stunning area, you'd fail the audit. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But here, here's my question that I was uh, driving to, which is, did you think to yourself, you know, I don't want to do something that's going to help cattle get killed and be part of the beef industry. I mean, a lot of people would say, you know, I'm a vegetarian. I love animals. If you love animals, you wouldn't help them, even though you're helping them die in a more humane and gentle way. Did that ever bother you emotionally in well, some I way? Got to thinking, I got to thinking, uh, I, yes, it has bothered me. And when I did my big project, Center Track Restrainer System in 1990, I remember we got the system all built, had everything running just right, and I got kind of emotional about it. And then I got to thinking, none of these cattle would have been born if we hadn't bred them. The cattle would have never existed. And we owe these animals a decent life worth living. Mm-hmm. That's something we owe them. Mm-hmm. And I've got other welfare concerns now that I'm concerned about. Uh, things like breeding animals to where um, they're, they're getting leg problems. This makes them lame. Mm-hmm. I have big concerns about that. Mm-hmm. What are the issues that you're most passionate about bringing your tremendous talent to solving now? Well, the handling is the, is the one issue that's actually improved a lot. And now I've been working on some handling issues in other countries where they have a lot of problems. Um, it, it's, um, 
you know, the packing plants now, it's a matter of maintaining it. Um, there's still some bad videos showing up. Some of those are in really small places. But I'm concerned about things we're doing with animals just genetically with regular breeding. I'm seeing problems with legs. Um, let's take an animal like the bulldog. I think it's a deformed monstrosity. If you go online and you type in on Google Images, Bulldog's Dilemma, you hmm. will see a 1938 version of a bulldog that's functional. Got, mm-hmm. it, it, it has some snout length, and it can breathe, and it can walk. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm very concerned about you know those kinds of issues now, and those are some of the things that students have been working on. One of my students, Ruth Bowie-Wody, did a survey of 28 feed yards, cattle handling, and for the most part, I've got really good results on that. That has improved. It's not perfect. But let me tell you, the bad old days of the 90s and the 80s, they was awful. Mm-hmm. The bad old days were really, really bad. Mm-hmm. And some of the stuff that's on some of the activist videos now, compared to the bad old days, is a training video, compared to some of the stuff I witnessed in the 80s and the early 90s. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, Temple, I want to change the subject a little bit and ask you what could be a little bit of a coming-from-left-field question, which is, I'm wondering if you think of yourself as a spiritual person, and if so, what that would mean to you. Well, when I look up at the stars at night, I think about it, and I got this poster when I visited NASA called the Hubble Deep Space Field. And on this poster is a hundred galaxies, galaxies, not stars. I look at that poster, and, you know, it's a big unknown out there. And I read about some of the, you know, the uh, super collider and uh, what, there's, what all the things that are going on at doing at CERN, things in physics, and some of it I understand, some of it I don't. That's the sort of stuff I think about. So for you, spirituality takes you into the realm of mystery, the mystery of, of space. Well, I look at that Hubble Deep Space Field when I think about those things. I look up at the stars at night. I, there's a lot of great unknowns out there. And what does it feel like for you when you look at that poster or you look at the stars? Well, there's a lot of things we don't understand. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think one of the most important things when it comes, I don't, I'm not usually don't do many, just much discussion on religion, but I think it's very important that uh, you know that people. Uh, Follow the golden rule. Treat others the way you want to be treated. I'll put it in modern English. Yeah. Back when I was, um, you know, when I was in my teens, I got sent a brochure from a cattle shoot company, and it had a, it had some little sayings on it. And one of the sayings was, uh, it says, "Men will wrangle for religion, fight for it, die for it, do anything but live for it." And I think that's a very good quote. And I looked it up online, and it was um, uh, it was a preacher. Uh, I think it was in the Church of England that wrote that. Of course, when I was a teenager, I had no way of looking up where it came from. Uh, and I've written about that in thinking in pictures. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you give a lot of presentations at conferences on yeah. autism, all kinds of conferences, but yeah. also to audiences of people who are interested in understanding autism. And I'm curious if you'd be willing to summarize for our audience, what's the core of the message that you give to parents who have discovered that they have a child that's somewhere on the autistic spectrum? 
Okay, if it's three-year-olds without speech, I can have, give you a standard answer. Now, when the kids get older, things get a little more complicated. But for three-year-olds, if you have a child that's not talking, regardless of diagnosis, the worst thing you can do is to do nothing. You've got to start working, engaging that kid, teaching them words, teaching them turn-taking games. Uh, you've got to engage them. The worst thing you can do is just let this little kid just tune out and stim on electronics all day. And you've got to keep the electronics under control unless it's being done as an interactive uh, activity with an adult. Now, when the kid gets older, okay, and I think I'm going to just, um, I'll for right now, just talk about the more my type, fully, would get, who's now fully verbal. He's like in first or second grade and is now fully verbal. Um, build on developing strengths. He's good at math, build on it. Good at art, build on it. Build on strengths. Lots of hands-on activities and lots of um Teaching basic skills, table manners, getting dressed, being on time. And I have a book that I've written just for teachers called The Way I See It. It's a whole series of little short chapters, The Way I See It. Um, teaching social skills. Uh, when I was a little kid, I had to be party hostess at my mother's parties. Then when the kid gets older, where I'm really seeing problems, is they're not learning working skills. There's a tendency to overprotect. I'm seeing things like an 18-year-old honors student that doesn't know how to grocery shop. And I didn't think that I was going to have to make grocery shopping a major part of my talks, but I found that I've had to. Hmm. And and work skills. That needs to start in middle school. And I know the paper routes are gone, but let's make paper route substitutes, things like walking dogs uh, for the neighbors, uh, helping out uh, with some office work somewhere, uh, working in a farmer's market. There's a lot of different things. Uh, when I was 13, mother got me a sewing job with a freelance seamstress. And when I was 15, I was cleaning horse stalls every day. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Got to learn work skills. Mm-hmm. Now, Temple, I feel like I've gotten a little bit of insight, at least in this conversation, about how your mind works, if you will. But I think one thing that I'm not yet feeling I have a sense of is how your emotional life goes or how your heart flows, if you will. And I'm wondering if you could give me some insight into that. Well, I feel I get scared easily. That's one of the things, and I feel very strongly that um, you got to do things to be a good person. Yeah. yeah absolutely. You know, when I was a young kid, I I got anger issues, couldn't control anger, and I had to learn how to switch that to crying, because um, if you cry, you used to keep a job, and and uh, NASA space scientists cried when they shut down the shuttle. It was very sad. I watched that on 60 Minutes, and I was crying, uh, totally crying. I, um, you know, if they'd been throwing things, they wouldn't have been able to have been NASA space scientists. It's uh, a lot of situations I have to learn control emotions. I can get giggling about the stupidest things. There's some silly thing I just think is funny, and like, this will make me start laughing. I was behind a truck, and he had a sign on the back of the semi-trailer that goes, we ship anything anywhere. I said, I bet you I can give you a load that you'll only ship once, <laughs> never again. <laughs> Just thinking, now I'm thinking about all the gross things I could put in that truck. Yeah. <laughs> and <laughs> so when I think of that, I start laughing. That's just kind of silliness. Yeah. What about love? Well, Mother one time wrote me a letter and said, love is making something grow. And I feel very strongly about, you know, helping my students to develop. Now, the kind of emotion I've really had is like 
when I was in high school, I had a roommate who got totally infatuated with the Beatles, and you know, and girls would be like ripping out the grass that Ringo Starr walked on. I, I just couldn't relate to that. I go, yeah, he's cute, but I don't want the grass he walked on. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and what would you say Temple has been one or two of the most uh, glorious high points in your life? Well, it's when I've had some jobs that have worked really successfully. That's been a big high point in my life. Um, you know, I really, I really get a thrill out of, you know, figuring out how to make things work. That's been very, you know, I've had some of those things have been great high points. I have to say that they are going to the Emmys at the movie. That was a major big high point. That was so exciting and fun because you don't know who's going to win until they rip open that piece of cardboard. Yeah. Yeah. That was a real high point. Now, I wanted to talk to you just a little bit more about something that we briefly touched on was this phenomenon of sensory overload. And, you know, here you invented some type of hugging machine to help people. Well, because I I did that to to help my anxiety. But sensory overload, the way I explain it at autism means I go, imagine if you were inside the speaker at the rock and roll concert. Wow. You were inside one of those big speaker boxes that would be sensory overload. Just so loud you can't stand it and all kinds of flashing lights going on and strobe lights are going on and can you imagine what it would be like to be inside one of those big box speakers? Yeah, it sounds actually overwhelming and terrifying. It would be terrible. Yeah. Okay, that'd be sensory overload. And is in your research... Is that common for people on the autism spectrum or maybe on the more extreme end to experience it varies that? It a lot. You can, have uh-huh. some people, you can have some people that are fully verbal that have a lot of problems with sensory overload. Extreme effort is required to screen out background noise. They mm-hmm. have to really, uh, uh, really expend a lot of effort. My sensory problems now are nuisances, but there are some people where the sensory issues are extremely debilitating. Mm-hmm. And it makes it impossible for them to tolerate a noisy restaurant, for example. Yeah. I don't like noisy restaurants, but I can tolerate them. Yeah. Well, what do you think of things like weighted vests and weighted blankets and things some like that? Some people, yeah. they're helpful. It doesn't help everybody. But for some people, it's helpful. That's an inexpensive, easy thing to try. Uh, some people like this like tight kind of athletic compression garments. Those are all easy things to try. You know, and then you always get asked about evidence-based. Well, I kind of have a rule because I, I've come from the practical world. If if something is, you know, easy to try, like a weighted vest, we'll go ahead and try it. Uh, it's, and it's not very expensive. It's not dangerous. And it's not time-consuming to try it. It's something, well, you're going to try it and find out right away whether you like it. Mm-hmm. So I have a relatively low uh, requirements for evidence-based. But if something's dangerous, like a drug with a ton of side effects or extremely time-consuming or expensive uh, in order to try it, then um, I've got, I'm going to, well, I want the journal articles and the proper scientific studies. Mm -hmm. I've been seeing these weighted vests and weighted blankets come into the, you know, culture at large, meaning people are using them who aren't on the autism spectrum, but who just, you know, whatever, find themselves feeling panicky and and just want to lie under a weighted blanket. Yeah you know, calms down the nervous system. And I was on a plane yesterday reading McLean's, which is like the Canadian Time magazine. They had an article in there on weighted blankets. Yeah. 
it, it's a simple thing to try. You know, and it works on some people and others it doesn't. You know, you can just try it. Yeah. Okay, I just have two final questions for you, Temple. Okay. If you could wave your magic wand, your Temple Grandin magic wand, and the culture as a whole, people as a whole, would view people on the autism spectrum differently, they were to see it differently, what would that difference be? They want to look at what people can do, not what they cannot do. And I put a very big emphasis in all my talks. Okay, if a kid's a good artist, uh, get his pictures on your phone. And and uh, that's what I learned a long time ago was, yeah, I, they thought I was weird, but when I showed off my drawings, they went, wow, you made that? It needs to be emphasizing on what the person can do rather than on the handicap. Yeah. That's, I think, really important. Because if you didn't have a little bit of autism, we wouldn't even have this telephone and the recording devices you're using right now. Uh-huh. So you're saying that the inventor of the technology? That's right. You see, there's some scientific literature out there that shows that creativity and some intellectual giftedness is definitely shows up in the family history of people with autism. little bit of the genetics, and it's a complicated genetics. It's not like you have it or you don't. It's more like a continuum. It's like several hundred little tiny code variations in the genome. And a little bit of the trait gives you a brilliant engineer who's socially awkward. Too much of the trait, you might get a kid that's uh, nonverbal and has very, very severe problems. Sometimes you get a nonverbal person that has a good brain hidden inside that looks really low-functioning but can type independently. Yeah, yeah. Okay, here's my final question for you. Okay. This program's called Insights at the Edge. And one of the things I'm always curious about is what the leading edge is in someone's life in terms of their own growth, what they're working on personally at this point in time. And I wonder I what find, that is for you. Yeah. Well, I find I always keep learning. The other thing is I'm an older person now. Uh, some places say I'm past retirement age. I'm, I'm in a department. We've had two professors with very severe health problems that are my age. And so what's the most important thing for someone that's, uh, you know, late 60s should be doing? And I think one of the most important things I can do is getting students turned on. So I jump at the opportunity, situations where I can talk to um, students, I can talk to um, parents of kids, um, help the next generation to be everything it can be, get students turned on. I've had a lot of students write to me that are, you know, got a diagnosis like maybe autism or dyslexia or ADHD or some other problem, and they've seen the movie and it's expired them that they can succeed, that's important. Mm -hmm. And so um, a lot of emphasis on passing on knowledge. I just heard on the radio on NPR uh, this afternoon that Marvin Minsky, who worked on artificial intelligence at MIT, had passed away, and that he would spend hours talking to students. He was 88 when he passed away. And I just got to thinking about that, and I thought, well, I think that's the same thing that um, that I, I want to do, getting students turned on. And I've worked with a number of uh, students that have been kind of different, helped them to be really successful. Mm -hmm. Temple, thank you so much. Thank you so much for all of the writing that you've done, the inventions you've done, all the ways that you're inspiring generations now and to come. Thank you so much. You're such a courageous and successful figure. Thank you. 
Well, thank you very, very much, and thank you so much for having me. SoundsTrue.com, many voices, one journey. Thanks for listening.